0: I'm replacing Stephen and uh, what I'd like to talk about is uh, the Nama factors, non-grasping and emptiness, so kind of possibly giving a little of a practical spin on it. And also just to tell you so I uh, don't forget that tomorrow Stephen has asked me to give instruction on the the Korean style meditation using the question, what is this? And so if anybody wants to come, then that's what I'll be doing tomorrow morning. So, yeah, I want to take a kind of a practical spin because I am truly not a philosopher. I mean, like, you, like everybody else, I've got a mind, which I'm happy to have and to use in whatever creative way I can but I'm not really a philosopher like Stephen is. And I must say I really, uh, the fact that the number factors condition consciousness or not that consciousness is a part or different or somewhere else <laughs> truly does not keep myself awake at night, <laughs> but what keeps me awake at night is contact and contact with the dry air of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So that's why I like to look at in terms of the five Nama factors. So at night uh, or in the daytime possibly also, there seems to be this contact. There is this dry air, hot air, which seems to touch my nostril, my throat, my body, my skin. And then there is a feeling tone a little, it's a feeling tone I've rarely experienced, and one could say possibly it's a little unpleasant since it keeps me slightly awake. Then, of course, there is discernment. I give meaning to that experience that it must be the dry hot air of New Mexico. Possibly I'm not used to it. I might get used to it. I mean, possibly, you know, as a kind of a discernment meaning. I could try to kind of have the whole uh, large area having a huge humidifier, but that might be a little difficult. (laughs) Or what I can consider in terms of meaning is that in three weeks I'll be in England and it's the first time I'm looking forward to go to wet England. (laughs) (laughs) Then there is intention, action which is, I apply more cream than usual, because it's a little itchy. (laughs) And then there is attention, which actually I think is what I would call patience, to just be with it. So anyway, this is me, my NAMA factors, meeting the dry air of New Mexico. (laughs) And if I added to that what Stephen was talking this morning about grasping, then I would have suffering and trouble, because suffering comes from grasping and exaggeration. I think this is very important to see, that I could have the contact of the dryness, and I could really stick to that. My my nose is dry, my throat is dry. God, this is terrible. I mean, then it would be terrible. Or I could have that unpleasant, dry feeling, And then I have this feeling torn, this is unpleasant. And then if it's unpleasant, I can't stand it, I can't stand this. Then discernment, I can't wait to get to England, where there is still three weeks, day by day. Then there is intention, action. I could kind of, you know, cover myself with cream every two hours. And then my tube would be quickly finished, which would not be so useful. (laughs) Attention. I could grasp at attention and think, I am a Buddhist, I am equanimous, this is tough, this is dry, but I'll just bear with it, you know, <laughs> and not be creative with it, which would be to see, you know, what can I do? Maybe it could be more in the shade, use cream or whatever it is. So, in a way, the thing, I, because I can remember long ago when I was first in Korea. I can remember one, the third season, I was doing a three-month retreat and it was total Korean immersion with the Korean nun and ah, it was terrible. I felt it was terrible, this is important. I grasped the idea that it was terrible and I can still see myself every day. There, are this big calendar you took kind of big pages every day out. And every day, I would take one page out, and oh, oh, still so many. And it was amazing that feeling every day. I could not wait for it to be finished. And the calendar, in a way, represented that grasping. But actually, it was not so bad. And I really, truly learned a lot in that retreat. But in a way, now, I have this experience of the dry air. It's a little uncomfortable. But it's okay and the difference is very much within the grasping that if there is no grasping it doesn't mean that the Nama factors are not there but they are much more fluid things can come and go through this skin I have to be in contact to a feeling tone etc because there is fluidity and this is a problem with grasping is that in a way it stops the fluidity of the experience. But it doesn't mean that the experience will always be pleasant, but if it's unpleasant then you are just with that as it is without exaggerating it. So then it really become this amazingly terrible thing when it is not. So I would like to, to do a little Uh, Demonstration. And for me, in a way, non grasping. I think that's what we do in meditation. I think in meditation, often there is all this idea, intention why do we meditate? And to see the Buddha nature, to be enlightened, to be awakened, to be sorted out, to do this, that, and another. We generally have, you know, kind of little agenda. Then we measure up, you know, is this coming closer to the agenda or not? But to me, actually, what we do in meditation is cultivating non-grasping mm-hmm. through the cultivating of concentration and inquiry. And we can notice this in three ways. Of course, we can notice it in what I would call meditative state, when suddenly the grasping totally go and you feel yourself very differently. But in a way, you don't stay like that all the time. You cannot be always in a meditative state of non-grasping. So we have to be careful to equate that special experience in special circumstances. I want to experience this all the time in my daily life. This is very different circumstances. What is useful in experiencing that is that you know non-grasping is possible. And it also makes you experience little how it is also sometimes in meditation we can experience what I call quiet and clear state where and again what happens they suddenly happen and they stay a little while and then they go is again non-grasping you are experiencing non-grasping it doesn't mean there is no consciousness or that you're not there you're very much there but you're there in a different way and then there is another way which I think most of the time we are cultivating non-grasping in meditation to which I think we don't give enough attention. And it's what I would call the effect of meditation, that you sit in meditation, you might have a terrible meditation, you're sleepy, you're thinking of something else, you're distracted, you have something on your mind. But I would suggest that at the end of the meditation, you feel different. Something as something as rested, relaxed. And I think what has rested, relaxed, is, is grasping, is, is holding. And so I think I would be careful to kind of always want to have a good meditation because I don't think it matters. I think what matters is that you sit there and that you intend, and then time to time you come back. And to me, in a way, that's what we're doing in meditation, is cultivating non-grasping so it can be there more in our daily life. Because we can see how Stephen and I talk about it, because then we feel ease. And time to time in our daily life, we feel ease. And why do we do so? Because at that moment, we are not grasping at anything. But it is not, doesn't mean that we are not alive, responding, totally there. But we are totally there in a different way. So my little demonstration, so I talked about non-grasping first, so now grasping. And I would say we are, a lot of the time, in a grasping state. It's like kind of, you know, we are like uh, sticky. It's like we are Velcro, we're covered by Velcro, and everything comes, <laughs> you know, and then you try to take it kind of is a little difficult and so what but to me what is interesting in grasping is not to say you should not grasp because what's the point if that's a tendency we have what I think is much more interesting is to look at the process of grasping experientially what happens when I grasp at something and so I'll just make a little demonstration let's say this is is a golden diamond It's mine, it's precious, or this is the greatest truth in the universe and I have got it. So, either way, this is precious to me, and this is mine, okay? This is mine, so I grasp it, so I hold on to it. And then what happens? Two things. First, I get a cramp in the arm. (laughs) And I think that's where a lot of tension in our life comes from. From the grasping, as soon as you grasp at something, you are bringing tension in your life. And then second thing, which I think is even more important, what happens when I do this, is that actually, I can't use my hand. (laughs) I am stuck. I am stuck with this. And then I grasp something else. In other words, then you grasp with your feet, (laughs) and then you're paralyzed. You're stuck. And then, in a way, to me, this is a 2 process that you have when you grasp. The first thing is that it brings tension. But the second thing is that it limits us. And unfortunately, we don't seem to see that. And to me, this is one of the greatest liberation that we can gain through meditation to realize that we cannot reduce ourselves to anything. Because what happens is that, let's say, we come into contact with something, or we feel something, or whatever it is. Then generally we identify with it. This is mine. I own it. I have it. It is my feeling. It is my idea. Or whatever it might be. You identify with it. And as you identify with it, you actually solidify it. That's what is very interesting by identifying, grasping means identifying and then means you solidify it and then through that solidification you magnify it and then you will tell me I am overwhelmed by this problem, I am overwhelmed by this thought and often you say I can't help thinking about this I can't help feeling this. So in a way what starts out as you encountering something, finish by that object being in control of you. This is very interesting. That's what happened with grasping. Because, in a way, what you do by grasping is that you isolate the thing from the surrounding circumstances. It is very automatic. We do this again and again. We Identify, solidify, and isolate, the limitation. I can't use my hand anymore. You (coughs) isolate, then you limit, you reduce yourself to that. You become overwhelmed. And it's interesting how we move from reducing ourselves to something to suddenly that thing taking us over. That's what I think is very interesting, the movement. You encounter something which is just something amidst many other things, and then very quickly, it overwhelms you. When before it was just kind of part (coughs) of the condition of what was. And the next thing we do with grasping, and it's part of the solidification process, is that we permanentize it. This will always be like this. And in my discernment, I tell myself, who knows, I might get used the dry air of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. I don't totally think it will be like this all the time of the three weeks, I don't know. Could be like this, could be different. So now to give a little more how it works, I like to show how grasping at certain typical things that we all experience, how it works in the process. And I had this experience last year, and it really showed me that a lot of the time, we grasp at thought, and that actually the grasping at the thought is not just grasping at a fuel firing in the brain, it's kind of really has this amazing effect on the whole body. So what happened was that we have moved to France a year and a half ago. France is amazingly bureaucratic, you would not believe it. (laughs) And the people who are in the bureaucracy are just amazing too. It's very hard to deal with them, but anyway... And so we're trying to get medical cover. So I worked on it for a year and a half, for a long time. And then finally I thought, I've got all the papers. I got where I have to go, where the person is. So I go there. I bring all my paper. I meet the person. And she looks at them. And then she has this little smile, sneaky smile. And she said, Madame, two forms are missing. Essential forms. I need them come back in two weeks and I come out of that office and it's market day in this little village and so you know there is no traffic there is just people milling by and I'm stuck on the spot and I'm stuck because I'm grasping at this thought, I am hopeless, this is hopeless and I'm paralyzed so I grasp at the thought, I am hopeless this is hopeless. And I magnify it to such an extent that I am stuck on the spot, and people are kind of milling around me, until I kind of suddenly realize, hey, that's what is going on. I am paralyzed in this moment. My body is kind of stopping here. What's going on? So I look up in the mind, and I see this. I am hopeless. This is hopeless. And then the creative awareness says, wait a minute. you know. I mean, it is not really hopeless. You can read, you can write, you've only written books. You should be able to feel forms. (laughs) And I thought, this is true. This is true. And since then, I have a very different relationship with forms, I must say. And as we were in Spirit Rock, we got a phone call telling us that our medical cover, I thought was sorted out, is not sorted out. So I have to start all over again, I think. So be it. You know, let's have discernment in action, attention in action. The next thing, which is also interesting, I think, is is feeling. I mean, we few people have talked about feeling. Steve and I talked about feeling torn. So, in a way, we have feeling torn, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then we have what I would call feelings. Feeling as sensation. Like, we have more particularity of just and just being pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So it's a kind of a little more kind of conditions, a little more kind of texture to the feeling. And I think then further on you get disturbing emotion if you grasp at the feeling. And generally you will, I mean, because feeling, we feel them with the heart. I mean, they're true, they're real. How can I not grasp at them? That's what people tell me, they're there. They are true, you know? And generally you're aware overwhelmed by feeling because they saw so there. You think thought I can't figure it out. But feeling they saw so there. And this is what happened to me a few years ago, is that I woke up one morning with this funny feeling. Funny, depressed, heavy, grey feeling. It was all here. Kind of like a big something there. Grey, heavy, a bit depressed, hmm, not very pleasant. And I looked in the mind and I looked in the conditions, and there was nothing. That was maybe my luck, or I don't know what. I could not stick it anywhere. It could go in no channel. I had no reason that I could see why I could have that feeling. So I did not stick it anywhere. I did not grasp it in any way. I thought, ah, there is this funny yuck feeling. Mm, okay, that's the way it is. So I stayed with it, and the next morning it was there again and the next morning, and it went on for two weeks, every morning I would wake up with that funny feeling and I just went around with it because it was there. And what was interesting is what actually made it go, was actually the fact that one day I had, uh, saw somebody in an interview and they were in such kind of state, it required all my energy and all my kind of capacity and creative awareness and everything to really be there and try to see, you know, how can I could creatively respond. And it was totally gone. It was there and it was not there anymore. And it seems to me that the only way I could possibly explain it, that compassion, in a way, was what kind of in a way, something much stronger arose, which then possibly made it go, I have no idea. But I thought it was interesting at the level of how we generally feel about our feeling. We feel it's so there, so we identify so much. I like when people say, I am angry, I have a right to be angry, you know, I have an angry person. And I think, well, fair enough, but is it, is it comfortable? <laughs> is it pleasant? Generally not. Generally, it's tense, tight. So, in a way, it's kind of, you know, looking at kind of how can I be with feeling? So that it's not that I am not sad or I'm not joyful I'm not happy. We all are human. We all have feelings. But how is it that by not grasping at it, then they don't become what I would call disturbing emotion, which then will be, in a way, like the klesha. They will rattle us, they will disturb us, we won't feel at ease, we won't feel grounded, we will feel kind of like a kind of a leaf in the wind. There is no way to kind of stand in a kind of a grounded still way. Another thing that often happens with grasping, it seems to me, is problem. People often say, you know, I have a problem. And what I am always amazed is by actually what what they do. What we do when we have a problem is that we grasp at it. We reduce our whole life to this one problem. This is my problem. This is me. And this is all there is to my life. And this is it. You know, and then you want everybody to agree that, yes, you have a big problem, isn't it big, isn't it terrible, you know, so you make it even bigger. You want everybody to call you and say, you know, yes, this is such a big problem. Instead of seeing that, actually, yes, I totally agree, you have a problem. You might have a difficulty, you might have an illness, you might have difficulty in relationship, at work, whatever. It's not pleasant, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult, but You cannot reduce your life to that. You can never reduce your life to one single problem. You know, because if you look in your life, there is generally so many more conditions than this problem. And to me, in a way, this is to see how the process of grasping works. Because then, if you don't grasp so much, then there is more ease to deal with the problem at hand. Okay, what's going on? How did it arise? How am I reacting? How can I look at this differently? And then you can bring creativity. I think this is one of the difficulties with grasping is that it, it stops your creativity. It stops your natural creative awareness to rise and to kind of in a way play with life instead of in a way being stuck With life. So, what is important to see is that non grasping is not, and I think this is very important, is not negation, is not rejecting. Because often this is what spiritual life is about. Okay, grasping is a problem. Okay, let's get rid of this or let's get rid of the end. I think a lot of spirituality is about that is about getting rid of negation. But I think actually non-grasping is not to get rid of the hand or to get rid of the thing, but just to open the hand. So then there is freedom. Then there can be movement. Then there can be activity. There can be creativity. And I think it's very important for us to remember that, that all we need to do is to open our hand, open our grasp and relax. So then we can there can be much more freedom, much more movement. And and I would like to to, to read a, a passage from Tawe because I think what is very important to see in the spiritual life, in non-grasping, it also what Stephen is trying to show you is that there is never one strategy, that there is always so many different ways to deal with life as it presents itself. At first, we are multifaceted, we are multi-perspectival. Life also is multifaceted, is multi-perspectival. So we can never just have one strategy to deal with the way life comes to us. I think this is very important to see. So that I would encourage you to be creative in your non-grasping. There is not just one way of non-grasping. There are many different ways of kind of working, playing, experimenting with non-grasping. And so I'd just like to read this passage by Taui. Taui is one of my uh, kind of a favorite Zen master, of a Chinese Zen master of the 12th century. And he's one of the kind of great one of the persons who really kind of uh, created, developed the questioning, the what is this, that is done in the Korean Zen tradition. And what is interesting with him is that he worked a lot with lay people. And that's what he devised, the question, so that anybody could do it, not just monks and nuns. And the way he's known is through his letters to all these lay people he used to correspond with about practice. And this is what he's writing, answering to the letter of somebody. And that's what he says. I take it your fifth son is not recovering from his illness. So the person must have said, oh, this is really sad, this is terrible, my son is really ill, etc., etc. And so that's what he says. It is precisely when afflicted that you should carefully investigate and inquire where the affliction arises from. First method, you feel afflicted, you are in pain, there is sadness. And Taoiseach said, well, look, where does the affliction arises from? If, however, if, he says, if you cannot get to the bottom of its origination, then where does the one who is afflicted right now come from? So if you cannot find, kind of, cannot look into the origination of the affliction, second method, second strategy, where does the one who is afflicted right now, I think this is very important, this right now, come from? So this is the next inquiry, the next kind of things to probe, to look, in the experience. And then he goes on to say, and that's why I like it so much, if you want to think, then think, if you want to cry, then cry. And I find that wonderful, because it kind of in a way gives various things to look at, various ways to look at the grasping. And then he said, well, if you can't help it, and you want to think about this, then just think about it. If you want to cry about it, just cry about it. So in a way, again, this multifaceted approach that is not just one way, it's actually many different ways to deal with it and also this very human acknowledgement <laughs> that we are all human. If somebody is very ill, we are sad, but are we sad because we have empathy for the person who is ill, or are we sad because we have self-pity toward ourselves? To me this is even there When you say, if you want to cry, then cry. This would be my question. Where does the crying come from, anyway? And it seems to me that in that questioning, there is also an acceptance of what is. So non-grasping is really not about rejecting. To me, non-grasping is fully accepting, meeting whatever is in that moment. And I would suggest that actually emptiness is what helps you to really know everything that is going on and to accept what is going on. Because what is interesting with emptiness, as Stephen has pointed out, is that often either people are attracted to it because it's this kind of wonderful stuff out of stuff comes out, or it's this very frightening, deep black hole you're going to disappear into. who knows where you're going to reappear, if at all. But I think it's very important. To me, emptiness actually is a very practical, experiential stuff. And that I found very useful for myself. And first, what we have to, be, to see is what Stephen said. That emptiness, what does it refer to? It doesn't refer to a thing. It just refers to the fact that everything is empty of independent self-existence that everything is empty of inherent existence. So you might say, well, that they have inherent existence or not, who cares? And I would agree there. Philosophically, who cares? That there is something in there or not, who cares? Well, it, the problem with that is that actually it matters, because generally you do things with it. You see, there is, this, there is not something there. But because you think there is something there, then a whole lot of other things happen, which actually cause us suffering. And I think the way we tap is because of the fear that Stephen pointed out. That because there is this feeling, this idea that there is this me, this I somewhere in there, like there is this little cube written, Martin, this is me. And because of that, I mean, this is my little cube, you know. And they're going to kind of, you know, and then for some reason we are afraid of other people. And then our strategy, our survival strategy, become of building the walls with the blocks of our survival strategies that we build up in childhood, which could be very useful then, that we build up in our adolescence, and then we continue to build up an adult. So we, we have all these walls around us. And to me, it's like we are in a box. We are enclosed, and we build this up so that we protect, so nobody is going to get us. And then we look at the people over there. Oh, yes, in their little box. Yeah, you know, don't come too close, you know. Mine is better. My box is better. My blocks are better. When actually there are no blocks, there are no blocks. There is really nothing to, to, to protect. And in a way, the amount of time we cultivate strategy to protect ourselves is just amazing. And how much suffering comes from that. And what it stops us from experiencing, from expressing, from manifesting is compassion. This is the greatest obstacle to compassion, is that fear, that self-protection. Then the other image I have Of this idea, there is something there. There is this little cue. And to me, it's like a pin cushion. It seems to me that we feel that we have a pin cushion here, right? And especially words. You know, somebody said something nasty to me. Ping! (laughs) Go there. And then two years later I remember it. So I move the I move the pin, a little blood. Wasn't it terrible that I said this? This was terrible. Yes, yes. But what is a word? What is a word? If I suddenly say to you, and I look, you know, very serious. I have something very important to tell you. All of you here. And I say, you are stupid. You think, what? Stupid? Am I stupid? Does she really think that? She's stupid to say that. And you're going the whole thing. But wait a minute, what if I said, very serious, looking at all you very deeply, you are enlightened. Wow, she said it, I am enlightened, this is it, this is it. And what is a word? What is it? I mean, there's a fuel firing in the brain. It is a few wave, whatever it's called scientifically, but as soon as it's been uttered, it's gone. But we stick at it, we take it and we keep it. When actually there is nothing to keep and nowhere to keep it. Of course, we can consider it. You know, am I stupid? Am I? Well, I don't think I am. Well, okay, then it's their stuff, not mine. I think it's very interesting how we, words which are so intangible, I find we kind of, we so much identify, fix ourselves with them. I find that very interesting. Another image I have, with this idea of, you know, self, that there is this body, this self body, and on it, everything comes and sticks. Like this, you know, this suction cap arrow we have when we are a child, you know? You know these kind of, you kind of throw these arrows and then they have a suction. <laughs> you know, and so it's kind of like we have all these arrows. And then we bumps into other people's arrows too, kind of, you know, and then it kind of gets a little painful. So we kind of want, don't want to be too close to them. You know, my arrow needs to have a little freedom. You know, so I can, you know, indulge in their pain. Generally it's kind of painful. even then it might not be such a problem because who knows we could live with the pink and the walls with the suction cap possibly but what is even worse is that then to that self that is not there we stick quality that surely are there and notice how we do that how we stick quality <laughs> and when I used to live in England I used to live in a community, and every spring, they used to get so excited about rhubarb pie. (laughs) Do you know rhubarb? Everybody knows rhubarb. Okay. I used to hate rhubarb. I could not stand it. I thought that in rhubarb, there was something wrong. And from that, I thought if there is something wrong in rhubarb, there must be something wrong in them to eat it. (laughs) But how often do we do this? And it's a joke about the French people. They, they eat snails. They must be slimy. But how often do we do that? We stick to quality that are immutable, that are always there. Have you had the occasion for this to happen to you? You have a friend, a really good friend. They're really nice to you. They're really friendly. They're really good people. And then they do something wrong something a little mean, a little nasty, to somebody else, let's say. And you say, no, 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 this is a mistake. They are good people. Then, somebody you don't like, you think they're really bad people, they're really not nice, and you don't really like them. And then they do something nice, they do something good, they do something compassionate, and what do you say? Oh, no, 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 there is a mistake. They are bad when actually the goodness or the badness of the person very much depend on condition. I mean, it's wonderful to be with happy people because they are fine. They're very generous if they're happy when everything is fine. I mean, you are the most wonderful person in the world. But let's say that you are ill, you're tired, you work too much, you, then you might not be such a wonderful person. It very much depends on conditions. And to me, in a way, this emptiness, I would say the, what emptiness, kind of a, what meditative awareness shows us, is actually that we are a flow of conditions. That at any given moment, we are this flow of conditions. And in a way, the meditation is to see more and more the conditions that form that flow. And what we have to be careful is that this flow of condition that is called Martin Bachelor is relatively constant. I mean I'm not suddenly going to sprout an elephant head unless something really drastic happens in this universe. You know, I'm going to stay fairly short, fairly, you know, with my glasses, etc. I mean it's kind of, you know, there is a certain constant in this flow of condition. But at the same time, it is also relatively changing. And to me, this is what I found at a very simple level. You look at yourself in the morning, in the mirror, as Stephen was saying, you look and you feel a little tired, a little woozy, and, woo, woo. and the person you look at is not very bright, not very fresh, a little past it, one could say. Then in the evening, you have to go out, you have to go to a party, so you kind of doll yourself up and you look, and it's a totally different person you see in the mirror. Suddenly there is this freshness, this sparkle, and you could nearly see a little prettiness there that really was not there this morning. And it's the same person. It's the same flow of conditions. And to me, what is useful about meditation is to, it helps us discover more and more the flow of conditions, the conditions that forms us. And it has this good point and its bad point. The good point is that actually you start to see much more wisdom, compassion, creativity, skills, appreciation, wonderful feeling, etc, etc. But on the other side you also start to see more where you are stuck, where you grasp, what triggers you, what kind of irritates you, what makes you sad, what makes you this, that. But looking at it in this more fluid, creative way, then you can work with it. You can know what is a problem. You can kind of know what are the conditions that give rise right to that. Because the thing is, you are never always the same. You can never be angry 24 hours a day. You cannot be joyful 24 hours a day. You cannot be stuck. 24 hours a day. You cannot be enlightened 24 hours a day. We would like it to be so, don't we? And so in a way, this flow of condition, and I think to me in a way the, the meditation, is to realize the flow of condition and to see that we cannot reduce ourselves to anyone of this condition. That I cannot reduce myself to a thought, to a word, To a feeling, to a problem, to a physical property, to whatever it is. We are, at any given moment, much more than that. And I like to finish just with um, this poem The golden orioles fly through the sky, they leave no prints. The reeds' shadows sweep the water. There are no ripples. So this is all I wanted to say. Today there are five minutes in case there is a question or two, or a comment or two. Yeah. What I'm getting adjusted is by using our awareness Mm -hmm. developed here. Yeah. And also the walking and all of that is kind of like strapping our our mat to our bus, so we have it with us all the time, right? (laughs) And uh, we use that to uh, discern different, how things affect us and stuff. And then we choose, make choices that are more coincide with how the reality that we want to create. Yes, but I would say it's even more so. That actually, I think, what meditation helps us, and I think this is the concentration aspect, is very important because it creates more spaciousness. So in a way the concentration aspect of the practice is what gives us spaciousness, stillness, ground in ourselves, and the inquiry is a part which makes us start to question things more, to see things more clearly. Mm-hmm. And so I would say actually then The the creative awareness leads to two things. One is acceptance of what is going on, and then to see what is it I can transform, and what is it I cannot necessarily transform. I think this is very important, because sometimes we think that we should be able to transform the whole stuff, and sometimes we can't. But the fact that we know it, we know how it arises, then makes us weaken the power of it. So I would say, yes, I would agree with you, but I would add that element, which me, to me is very vital of acceptance, which I think comes from the, partly from the concentration, from the fact that we are grounded and suddenly we see, ah, I do this. Isn't it funny that I do this? So the questioning is not a negative judging, but as you would say, as you kind of was trying to say this creative engaging and then yes it gives you choices because grasping does not give you any choices whatsoever but creative awareness yes give you choices and then you need the power of awareness to walk these choices to make these choices because generally there is this fear how can I do something I have never done before And this is interesting, the fear of change. You prefer to stay in the change that is in what is unchanging that is suffering, than to try the unknown that is not suffering. And what is interesting is, as you have the power to make the choice, as you say, the ease that follow from that is very interesting. And then you say to yourself, why did not I do this before? So yes, there is the questioning and the making choices. But I think the acceptance is also very vital. The ground. Yeah? Does Stephen still get upset if someone says something nasty to him? (laughs) (laughs) This is not something that would really bother him very much. You know, he's not not somebody who kind of, you know, gets really worked up about, I mean, he gets sometimes, really, I mean, the one time I saw him worked up, but that was very long ago. And that's the only time I really saw him worked up ever uh, to such degree was in China by a Chinese official. And if you have been to China, then you can understand what was going on. I was ill and various, and he was very kind of, uh, kind of difficult. And then he kind of really got what we could call mildly excited <laughs> compared to other people. But he's not somebody who gets kind of... Uh, I think his method is more to slow down. He <laughs> saw so, Buddha talking about suffering. The Buddha did not say everything is suffering. He said there is suffering and it is painful. And I think this is, and that's what to me awareness practice is useful to know that when, you know, I mean, I used to be quite heated, kind of, I'm from the south of France, so I'm a little <laughs> kind of heated much more than Stephen. I get much more excited than him. And it's only when I saw that the pain I was inflicted to myself when I got angry that I thought, hey, do I want to do this to myself? And I thought, not really. So in a way, I think this is a very important point. It's only when we know the suffering, and we truly know it through awareness to the whole body, emotional, mind, body process. We look and we say, ah! This is painful. I am doing this. And then you drop it like you would drop a hot coal. You would not think of it. But until, until you know it, then you'll grasp at it. This is a kind of the weird thing about it. This is true. So ah. Could you say a little bit more about the use of emptiness as a strategy? Um, <coughs> you mentioned we believe things are there and not really there. It could well, it's not that they, no, 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 the things are there. I mean, this is there, everything is there, but is how we put things in there. Let's say this chair, this is, you know, this is a chair, and, you know, you can't say the chairness is anywhere. The chair is made up of all the bits. If I take a few bits, then you don't have a chair, you don't even have a stool. So, but we... I'm very, I walk miles and miles and miles, and I'm so tired. And the chair is there. I sit. wow, that's a good chair, really good chair. But I am in a hurry. The chair is in the way. I bump into the chair. This is a bad chair. The chair is not the problem. The goodness of the badness of the chair does not reside in the chair, it resides in how I look at it, how I grasp at it. So that's what I'm trying to say. Emptiness is not saying things are not there. Emptiness is saying things are not there in the way we impute them. And more than that, the quality of these things are not there in the way we impute them. So that, in a way, so that things are not so fixed. To me that's the thing about emptiness. Things are as they are. I mean, a ball is a ball, you know. A clock is a clock, but then there is less kind of um, thing we put into it. As this is a wonderful clock, or this is a terrible clock, or you know. And then we, as Stephen says this morning, we exaggerate the negative property or the positive property. So non-grasping is not saying that there is nothing there. No, no, no. Is that the exaggeration? is not there anymore. With emptiness, the exaggeration stop, and there is more fluidity. You use the thing as it's being used. There is more of a flow, there is more of an ease of being with things. And being, what I would say, creatively with things, that is very vital. So use use them, respond creatively. That's why I would say actually compassion comes from knowing emptiness. Because if as long as we don't totally know the emptiness, the realize the flow of condition, then actually there is this separation which blocks a little our innate compassion. But I must stop now so that you can walk. So thank you very much. So that there is.